I'm Dr. Gene Hemsler, and you're listening to Money Talks, Atlanta's longest-running and most respected money show on radio. For more than 25 years, my associates and I have been providing straightforward, no-nonsense advice for your financial questions. Email us at drgene at hemsler.com. That's D-R-G-E-N-E at H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R dot com. This broadcast of Money Talks originally aired Saturday, July 15th, 2017. The excessive decline in the dollar. Late rally on Wall Street. Growing the economy. Growing the economy. Welcome. This is Money Talks. Well, good morning. Good morning. This is Money Talks. Atlanta's longest-running and most respected money show on radio. Totoro, did you know that? No, I did not. Since 1986, buddy. Uh, the most respected part is the part that tricks me up. Come on, come on. <laughs> That's just hard. Oh, well. We do have a special guest today, Dr. We do. Roger Tuttero from... Uh, He's the economics professor, the only one. The one and only. The one and only. Luckily not. Luckily not. uh, From Kennesaw State University, and he's our chief economic advisor. Right. So he's got his crystal ball. Let's hope. I noticed this one's not cracked this time, so. (laughs) All the water ran out of the last one. You had to get a new one. Yep, yep. And, of course, we've got Troy Harmon, who's... uh, you got a lot of digits after your name. A few things here, there. Did you get the CPA yet or what? CPA. No, it's... uh, it's uh, still in the works. Yeah, okay. in the works. Right. In the works. See, I'm the dumbest one at the table, Roger, because I'm I'm only a CFP. So that works for oh, me, Bill. You know, uh, <laughs> dollar bill, dollar bill. Did, Bill, did you think Roger was going to argue with you? Oh on yeah, that? he no. Roger's listen. No. Roger's not going to put up with me, man. He's a PhD. No, He's no, way no, smarter no, than I am. No, no. He's well, like proved I didn't have anything to do in the 1980s, but go to school. <laughs> so, that is that's right. Oh. Uh, all right, so, so uh, yeah, we got uh, all kind of information this week. Um, obviously, we got some market data. The uh, S and P 500 is up ten and a half percent year to date. I did see the Dow hit an all time high this week, um, and it was right on the heels of uh, a little bit of economic information coming out of Miss Janet Yellen herself. So uh, markets up this week, point nine four percent, led higher by information technology it's been the the uh pretty much the situation all year uh telecom was down over a percent this week um and it actually is in the basement year to date down 12.66 uh, percent energy right on its heels about 12 and a half percent uh for the year information technology up 21 percent uh, it's wow. to me that's uh, unbelievable but uh some of the big companies have uh Actually, led us higher with uh, with all their uh, the the positive. It's unbelievable. It's you know it's the heavyweights in the uh, S and P 500. At the same time, you know they're just they're they're not going to cover off the ball as far as uh, returns. Um, healthcare's close behind about six, 16.7 percent. So uh, we can leave that information. Talk a little. I think we're. 25 companies into uh, S&P 500 earnings. Hardly enough to talk about, but uh, do know that over the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking quite a bit about um, earnings out of the S&P 500. Uh, looks like probably the most uh, consumer staples, seven of the 36 companies have reported. Sales surprises 1.37%. 
up 5.68. Earnings growth almost 7% in consumer staples. The others, I don't know that it warrants talking about much. We're really early in the season, but uh, that will be coming over the next few weeks. So let's talk a little about the information we've gotten this week on uh, uh, the economy. Employment situation uh, came out for June 222,000 jobs. Roger, you feel free to kick in with any information you'd like to talk about. Uh, it beat the uh, 194,000 uh, that we've had added uh, each month. Uh, I have a question. Mm-hmm. How is it possible that we don't have any inflation? Well, you know, good question, Bill. Of course, but let's let's, let's go back. <laughs> make me comment on employment, that's, that's, and, then, and then we'll bring then we'll bring it in there a little bit. You know, first, uh, two twenty-two, great number for the month of June. Right. Um, I, in, in, in talks that I've given the last couple of months, I've tried to talk people out of looking just at one month because there's a lot of volatility in the data series. And I point out to folks that you know you could have a swing of twenty-eight thousand in the jobs, and that would be two one-hundredths or one percent. Right. So you know what we want to look at is a trend. And as you pointed out here, the trend has been. 190 to 175 jobs. If you look at a three-month or six-month or 12-month look-back period, that's great. Fed Chairman Janet Yellen says you need about 100,000 jobs a month to absorb the endogenous growth in the labor force. So we're adding jobs faster than the labor force is growing. So that gives us the falling on the unemployment rate, the tightening of the labor markets, which goes to your point, Bill, which is why aren't we seeing inflation yet? Right. And, you know, back in the 1960s, we thought we had a macroeconomist rather than thought they had the perfect prescription for understanding the economy. When the unemployment rate came down, you got a little bit of inflation. And when inflation uh, came down, you got some more unemployment, so-called Phillips curve relationship. But what we saw uh, in the 1970s and 80s, that broke down. And so I don't think good growth and adding of jobs is necessarily inflationary. And it is there is a question out there as to why we have not seen the wage growth occurring that we might expect for a 4.4% unemployment rate. Right. I think there is some sense that that unemployment rate probably overstates tightness in the labor market because the labor force participation rate, it's that so is low. the percentage right. that's of those people that are eligible, are so low. The other possibility is that, you know, we've got a generational play now where a lot of folks are, the baby boomers are retiring, and a lot of their uh, their kids and grandkids are entering the labor force. And so you, you probably don't see the average hourly wages go up as much because we probably are replacing some higher compensated individuals with, with some, some lower, lower. compensated. Mm-hmm. So so maybe the aggregate data isn't telling the whole picture on that. That's, that's why yeah. we can bring a Ph.D. to the table. Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Well, if he doesn't know what he's talking about, he sounds like he does. <laughs> it sounds right? brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> if only he spoke in a British accent, it would be even better, right? That's that's probably the only way to improve that. Uh, how about U.S. Beige Book? We got information on that this week. Uh, the comment was Econom- uh, economic activity expanded at a slight to moderate pace. That's a little less than what we have been seeing, a moderate pace, or, or so it seems. Any yeah, opinion there? And, and again, I... We went into 2016 saying that from fourth quarter, fourth quarter, 2.0% growth, that's about what we got. We said 2.2 for 2017. That's good, solid growth. But the people that are waiting on 3.5% GDP growth are going to be disappointed. We This has been an expansion, which is now in its 50, no, 96th month, right. but it has been a 2% economy. 
And I think that what you're seeing out of the Beige Book is pretty consistent with that. But it was broad-based. I think Philadelphia may be the only Fed district that was not up or did not report right. expansion uh, in the Beige Book. And so I think, you know, again, moderate growth is probably still the dominant theme. Yeah, the 1.4% is what we got. GDP growth in the first quarter, they're talking about, what, 2.5%, I believe, right. in the second quarter. Um, like you said, not going to knock the cover off the ball, but and that's kind of what part. we expect. We've got to remember with GDP, we're talking about the production of goods and services in the economy, not what we sell. And in the first quarter, we sold a lot more than we produced. And so inventories came down. Mm -hmm. If you add back that inventory adjustment, final sales of domestic product, we've been up about 2.6%, which would be pretty good. And so hopefully that drawdown in inventories in the first quarter was a precursor for some inventory rebuilding in the second and third. Yeah, we did uh, see some of that information. U.S. wholesale trade uh, bounced back in May. Uh, declining sales took a lot of the credit. Um, but uh, stockpiles rose 0.4%. So uh, there you have it. Those uh, uh, It looks like durable goods advanced 0.6%. Non-durable goods held flat during, uh, during that period uh, for wholesale trade. Uh, getting down the page again, uh, U.S. producer price index trend growth in the U.S. Uh, producer hasn't been overly impressive recently, but uh, immediate implications of the monetary policy are not significant. Uh, PPI for final demand rose 0.1% in June. Um, there again, that's one of those uh, inflationary numbers, right? Yes, well, uh, Bill alluded to is this lack of there being a lot of price inflation out there. And we had seen the PPI, which actually had been had moved down some in the past couple of years. We had right. seen it start to rise a little faster, but it's settling back down again. Yeah. So most of the indications are if you were looking for inflationary pressures building, the last couple of months haven't played into that story. Yeah, we're, uh, we're even below the 2% target of the Fed, right? Um, it, as I recall, the... Um, yeah, the Fed tends to look at something called core PCE, but if right. you look at the CPI, take out food and energy, core CPI is up, I think it's 1.7 right. over the trailing 12 months. So Yeah. Uh, well, and PCE is not far from that. I think it's, it's below two right. still, but just slightly. You know, I'm I'm a public school educated guy. I went to Kennesaw State, so. <laughs> hey, easy. They, they, they sign my paycheck. So let's I'm only kidding. <laughs> Everybody here knows I'm an owl. As Dr. Gene says, the Harvard of the Pines. That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, just going back to, to uh, inflation and, and wage growth, because as an employer, it's hard to find good quality right. people. And, you know, we have, besides being in the financial industry, we also have a real estate division that manages properties, single-family homes and apartment complexes, and we buy them and manage them and all of that. It's hard to find all different levels of skill. Right. Um, and so we're paying more, right. but we're not seeing the wage spiral because what you're saying is somebody who is – 60 or 65 is retiring, making 200, and we're able to hire them at 50 or 60. Is that sort of the theory? That's, yeah, that's part of it. But, yet again, if we're, if we're in a low price inflation environment, then that means that even more modest increases in wages actually contribute to welfare. You know, it's easy to have a, a 3 or 4% wage rising environment, and then you're in a 5% inflationary environment, and you lose ground. So when you're running in this 2% inflation economy, it doesn't take – much in the way of wage increases to actually be improving people's buying power. But you're exactly right on the labor shortages. In the construction industry, there is no doubt we could not be building uh, 2.15 million housing starts like we did in 2005 with the existing labor force. We know that construction now reports shortages of, of labor. Mm -hmm. We know that hospitality has problems with that. 
And, and I challenge anyone to find a, a goods-producing and distributing company that doesn't complain about the shortage of CDL drivers. Right. And so there's lots of pockets throughout the economy where, where jobs are actually abundant and the workers are scarce. Mm. All Absolutely. right. Well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break here. You listen to Money Talks? Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. This comes out of uh, we're gonna, we got a PhD here. He's going to grade you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> grade he's, you. he's good at grading, I guess, too. If you knew how much I hated grading, you would know how funny that is. Uh, CMEC reported this week uh, the SEC has caught an individual for insider trading. And the way that they caught him was very interesting. But let's lay it out a little bit. Uh, this individual uh, works as a research scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. A very unknown school. Faye Yan is the gentleman's name, who uh, allegedly uh, placed trades on companies that his wife, who works as an attorney in London, uh, was telling him these are the folks that we're working on. He placed trades uh, for mattress firm in Stillwater, netted himself $120,000. Guess what caught him? Uh, he went on Google and uh, Googled insider trading. What does the the SEC look for to catch folks for insider trading? That's that's exactly the way they caught him. I I mean anything that you put in that Google search engine, I guess is uh, <laughs> subject, uh, to subject to be uh, seen. And uh, I mean obviously this. So the guy question is, is, did he did he Google it before or after? <laughs> well, here's the thing. When you got 120, he was placing options trades. Like I say, made $120,000. Anytime you do any of those things and you start, uh, you know, the SEC is going to look at anybody that's uh, in the middle of a merger or acquisition. Uh, in order to cover his tracks, he uh, opened a brokerage account in Grandma's name. Mm-hmm. Put it on grandma, but you know what? That's that's not the first time we've seen that. That's no, uh, that's no. a pretty common trick. But uh, yeah, but I guess be I careful like what if, you go- if, Google. Yeah, I mean, if you got there's got to be a lot more zeros after that one twenty uh, for me to even yeah, think about well, it. Yeah, well, I mean, he probably looked at this as a long term, a long term uh, process. He was going to continue it in uh, that. But uh, mm-hmm. there you have it. Uh, yeah. Technology, I throw rocks it's not at one it of your all better the time, ones, but it's. Well, I mean, I gotta you say, usually hey, come up with some interesting ones. That's, well, you know, you know, I am subject to whatever's in the news for the week, but uh, <laughs> that to me was probably among the better. All right, MIT. The real takeaway is, had he been a Hensler uh, client, he, he could have gotten. Worry about that. No, he would have had excellent research access, and you know, <laughs> there, you, know, there you go. It doesn't. I'm not sure him. he he would have the same research access <laughs> that he had. But. <laughs> yeah, uh, trust me, there yeah, is nothing not, insider going on no. there. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, it uh, it did strike me as strange. Um, we got quite a few questions this week, and uh, anybody that has a question can get them. Uh, Answered online, if you give us a call at 770-429-9166 is our direct line. You can talk to a person there. If you'd like to uh, use our question hotline, you can call 1-855-429-9166. Leave a message. We'll play your uh, recorded question on the air and then answer right behind it. You can also email us, drgene at hensler.com. That's H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R.com. Uh, you can also find us on various 
versions of uh, social media. We uh, have a Twitter page, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. We got them all. I yeah. don't do any of it, so. Yeah. Well, all right, we <laughs> got sure an we awesome marketing there. department. They right. take care of all that stuff. Let's, let's take a question because I'm. I, this is actually a question that came up yesterday. I was sure. driving around looking at six apartment complexes with a partner who's they manage you know 6,000 doors, so they're significantly bigger than we are, and this was the question. So Frederick uh, from Norcross actually asked a good one. I've been reading about the Federal Reserve reducing their balance sheet. The way uh, we're being told is that the Fed will allow the bonds that they bought during quantitative easing to mature. So what happens to the cash that they receive at maturity? Well, here's the way to think about it. Prior to the financial crisis, the, the Fed executed monetary policy by targeting short-term interest rates. Mm -hmm. Then during the financial crisis, they shifted from short-term rates to long-term rates to what's called Operation Twist, buying these long-term bonds. They started buying mortgage-backed securities. With quantitative easing, they just bought bonds without explicit tying to interest rate targets. So what they're going to do now is that until recently, their position has been that any coupon payments they got on bonds they owned or any bonds that matured, they plowed that back into new securities. So right. they kept the size of the balance sheet the same. And, and, and now what's going to happen is they're, they're in the process of announcing how they're going to reverse those years of accommodative policy. And so they will probably start by not reinvesting bonds that mature, not really reinvesting coupons. And so when they do that, the owner of the bond that matures, instead of those funds being taken to buy another bond, those funds come into the Fed to essentially disappear off bank balance sheets. Here's the thing to remember about the Fed. What they do is they don't actually directly control the money supply. They control the position of member banks in terms of how many reserve, how much reserves they have. And then it's the process of those banks accepting deposits and creating loans that creates the money supply. So to put it in reference, if you look at the monetary base, which is the reserve position of all the banks out there, plus currency held by the non-bank public, it goes from being about eight, about $830 billion to about $3.85 billion, or a jump of about 364% between late 2007 trillion, and 3... Right? I'm sorry, yeah. trillion. Thank you, trillion. trillion. Yeah. A uh, jump of 3.84%, 3.64% be between the beginning of the crisis and date. It's going to take them Forever. years and years to pare that back down. So right. step one is to stop the reinvesting, and then they're going to eventually start talking about how do we gradually sell some of those bonds off. So if, yeah. I'm, if I'm Bank of America, whatever the reserve requirement is, I have to hold... Just, just make it up 10%. 10 it is 10 percent okay for, yes that. hey i'm not as dumb as i look about that. you know i got a yeah. face for radio there you go so um <laughs> so whatever if they they're a trillion dollar bank they got to hold 10 percent yeah they have to hold 10 percent of their of their uh what we call transactional deposits or checking account liabilities okay. on hand as a reserve right. if you will and so because they only have to hold 10 percent of that when someone deposits $1,000 in the bank, they've got to hold 10% of the 1000 which would be $100. They can loan out the other 900 And so what ends up being the case is that when the Fed buys all these bonds through what they call open market transactions, the banks find themselves with lots of reserves. They, can't, they don't make a lot on reserves, so they instead create loans with them. And so it works its way through the commercial banking system, and we get a multiple of the uh, initial injection of reserves as a change in the money supply. Now, what did one of the reasons we did not see the monetary policy of 2008 and 2010 be as inflationary as it might have been expected is that the money multiplier, the number of times those funds turn over, that, in fact, it dropped significantly. Right. And so it all so set, banks weren't making loans. That's right. right. They, were, they were carrying excess reserves. People were carrying cash. Uh, and those, both of those things are drains in, right. the, in the money supply creation process. But so, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be completely stupid. Again, I went to 
public school. So when, when the bond <laughs> matures, literally the Fed's just going to make the money disappear. Right. I mean, understand that you know, we always need to draw that distinction between currency and money. I mean, and, and you know, checkable deposits are money. And so what will happen is, all, is when the bond matures, uh, the Fed will there'll no longer be an entry somewhere in the commercial banking system uh, for, for those funds. Now, the way to do it is think about how they created money. The way they create it is the Fed goes and they buy a bond from Bill Laco and Bill deposits those funds in his, che- in his checking account. Right. And so all of a sudden there's an injection of that amount in right. the commercial banking system. We're just going to unwind that now. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is the money supply increased by sixfold and thereabouts uh, over the period from 2008 until today? Well, no, no monetary base increased by three, 360%, but the money multiplier actually dropped from being about the M1 money multiplier 1.6 down at one time to 0.7. So what you realize okay. is, wow, you know, the money multiplier got whacked by uh, what well, I have to do the math real quick, but that's not half. That's a little bit more right. than half. Right. right. And so that there there went a lot of that excess creation of monetary base. Now eventually, you know, we will need to drain that base off, or it could be problems down the road. So uh, you know the, I guess the part of the conversation we were having yesterday was how fast are rates really going to go up when they start letting this thing run off? And my attitude was similar to yours, although you're not saying interest rates are going one way or the other. That's going to take them forever to get get out of these positions. They're not going to crush the market. Right. Well, you know, I think estimates are all over the board on what the implications of the unwinding will be for long-term rates. I think it will push up long-term rates, but I think you're, you're not looking at a 3 or 4% jump in the 10-year bond. You're looking at smaller magnitudes and something that's going to be stretched out over a long period of time. Now, if we did have inflationary pressures building out there, and if we started seeing the CPI rising 3 and 4 and 5%, then I think there'd be more pressure on the Fed to retract the liquidity faster. So as part of – where is money supply at now? Has it gotten back to – I mean, are we is part of why they were running the, the reserves off similar to uh, – I mean, are the banks, I guess what I'm asking, are the banks lending more now, you know, or is they, it still pretty? Oh, no, they, they still are. I mean, there are some indications that they're tightening up on some construction-related credits, particularly in the multifamily housing market right now. But in general, if you talk to most bankers, they will tell you that they're still a little bit disappointed in loan demand. Mm-hmm. And and also, the, 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 the um, underwriting standards in general are a little bit tighter than they were before the financial crisis. Yeah. And, and one of the hopers, if you talk to any banker, one of the hopes they have is that we'll see parts of the Dodd-Frank Act rolled back so they feel like the regulatory burden upon them extending credit is, is diminished somewhat. Right. Do you see that happening? I think you will. Again, the big banks, they want to see the Volcker Amendment pulled back so they can trade on their proprietary books. Uh, the, the more community-oriented banks are more worried about some of the CFPB actions. Right. And so, yeah, I think you'll see changes. It happens in every financial crisis with pendulum swings a little bit too far toward regulation, and then afterwards we moderate some. I got you. Yeah. Okay. If you think about exactly how that happened, though, uh, it was a change in the, the credit quality, and, and that was regulated. Yeah. You know, no, by, absolutely. By the government, too. Happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to stop here for a quick break. You're listening to Money Talks. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. When you start investing in stocks, you seek investment advice. When you seek investment advice, you go to the internet. When you go to the Internet, you start believing all the wacky correlations spouted by armchair analysts. When you start believing those wacky correlations, you start buying and selling stocks based on butter production in Bangladesh. 
When you start buying and selling stocks based on butter production in Bangladesh, you offend your lactose intolerant girlfriend, who in turn moves out. When your girlfriend moves out, you can't afford rent on your own because all your money is tied up in the stock market. When you can't afford rent on your own, you become homeless and alone. Don't become homeless and alone. Get rid of financial advice from armchair analysts and upgrade to Money Talks. This is Money Talks. We're back. Come on, Roger. That's pretty good, right? Not bad, not bad. (laughs) I've never heard that before. (laughs) Oh, I'm Bill Laco with Troy Harmon and Dr. Roger Tuttero, Kennesaw State Economics Professor, our Chief Economics Advisor, and... uh, uh, Roger, we were talking at the break um, about the impact that these low interest rates really have had, not just on the economy, but I think the psyche and ultimately what it's doing long term to to businesses. So you were talking about life insurance or just insurance yeah. companies in general. Maybe you can explain how this really does hurt them. Well, you know, Troy and I have had an ongoing dialogue for a couple of years now sure. about in the wealth management business as people – have cash they need in the near term. Typically, you move them to fixed income. It's hard to get a whole lot of yield right yes, now. That's true. If you but want safety. That's right. And then the other problem is in the insurance industry, the, the two, there's two principles in insurance, reserves and mutuality. And so mutuality is when you have a loss I, and I don't have one, they kind of zero out. But really, why Warren Buffett owns insurance companies is the float, the right. reserves. And it's been very hard for the insurance companies to generate the kinds of uh, returns on their portfolios for the past uh, eight or nine years. And so it puts a lot more pressure on their margins. And so I think certainly the insurers will ultimately end up welcoming seeing rates come back up sure. simply because they can generate more return on their right. on the reserves. Yeah, when uh, they sell annuities at uh, certain guaranteed levels, it's uh, it's difficult to draw somebody's attention when you're telling them you can give them two percent. Right. Uh, you get a normalization of the curve. Well, and, that's uh, not how they sell it, though. See that fine print down there where it says guaranteed. They don't they don't really talk about that now. Well, and, and, and the other the other consequences when you look at pension programs. I mean, if we're in a very low interest rate environment and you think going forward Absolutely. it's going to be hard to generate a big return, sure. it makes the pension plans look more underfunded. Right. So what, what? So if you follow that theory, and I, I uh, so that forces people. The Fed sort of has forced people to buy riskier assets. Right. Okay. So you look at the stock market, all-time high or close to it. Who knows what today or tomorrow or the next day will bring. But sure. we're up there pretty high. I, I, I get earnings are good. They've been uh, decent, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you could say we're not at – we're certainly not at dot-com levels oh, in no, terms of no. P.E. ratios, that kind of thing. But it does feel a little frothy. Yeah. And when where I are you going to go? Like, that's my question. I always say right. I take some off the table, pay taxes <laughs> – and then what am I going to buy? A 10-year bond paying 2.3%? Or yeah, that hardly covers or, covers inflation. You're right. not going to expand your purchasing power for sure. And I think the Fed was pretty honest early in quantitative easing that part of their desire was to encourage people to take a little bit more risk, to get the risk on trades going. Right. And to kind of roll the clock back, Bill, we did the show back in the late 1990s, right. I believe. Right. And at that time, one of the models in vogue was a so-called Fed model, which right. tied the price-earnings ratio yep. to the 10-year bond. Well, we're sitting here today at 230 on a 10-year bond, so certainly you can justify a higher P/E ratio at 230 on the 10-year right. than you could at 550. Sure. Yeah. So. No, uh, one thing that we've noticed, I mean, even this week, you look at the two-year Treasury rate; it fell by 5.4 basis points. We look at the spread between the two and the 10 quite often. Uh, the 10-year fell 
one basis point, point zero one percent. But you look further out, the thirty-year Treasury actually was the only thing that rose. So we get a little bit of a reshaping of the yield curve. It's probably um, who knows why it happened this week, but uh, isn't that one of the fears of this unwind of the Fed's balance sheet that uh, the long-term interest rate, which uh, in their buying, it was their their intention to lower that long-term rate. It was, and we have, a, and you mentioned the two ten spread, which is a, right. sometimes a proxy for how steep the yield curve is, sure. and sometimes a proxy for how banks are going to perform in terms of net interest margin. Correct. It's pretty narrow. So hopefully, what will happen is as the Fed unwinds their bond portfolio, we may see some steepening of the yield curve, right. which the bankers would welcome. And the other part of the pie is that flat yield curves typically tend to pretail softer economic activity down mm-hmm. the road. In fact, the spread between short-term and long-term bonds is one of the ten components of the leading economic index that the conference board puts out. All right, yeah. so so that that leads me to my question. So as I understand this statistic, and I'm going to pretend like I'm correct because I may not be, there's only been one ten-year expansion in in the country? I think since in the post-World War II era, this is the third time we've done ten, uh, 50, uh, 96 months, which is where we are in June or July, depending on when you want to start it counting, uh, would be the third longest. Third I longest. believe that's right. Okay. And so the longest was right at 10 years, right? Yeah. Well, this is, this is close. We have, that's right. This is, is starting the ninth year. Two, right. We had 10 years between 1991 and 2001. So if I believe in history, should that pre-tell something? You know, I don't think so. And here's why. And I have this in, in the talks I give around the country. I make this point. I don't think that economic expansions die of old age. I think they die of bad policy. Yeah. They die of asset pricing bubbles. They die of inventory overbuilding. And they, they die of exogenous shocks and military engagements that we can't model. one of those big words. So, yeah. oh, you like that exogenous? Had to work <laughs> yeah. that in. Okay, good. Yeah. And, you know, so the fact that we're 96 months in doesn't bother me. Uh, there are risks out there, and we talk about them all the time. And and, and and we started the discussion today by saying we don't see the 3.5% growth rate in the near term. We think mm-hmm. we're in a moderate growth environment. Right. But that certainly is different than saying that a recession is right around the corner. Yeah, the, the Fed's using, what, like a 3%? Uh, top end target on their their uh, Fed funds rate. I think I've seen that uh, listed here. Or there, um, we're at one to one and a quarter. Yeah. This range thing is relatively new. I think I haven't. Yeah, seen that the, the range thing that came in when we got down close to the zero theoretical lower bound. So right. they, they didn't want to have the Fed funds rate actually go negative. Before that, you would actually have a specific target. But if you had a zero percent target, you make you flirt with negative occasionally. Here's the interesting part on that. You look at the dot diagrams the Fed gives you, but I, no disrespect to them, they're smart people, much smarter than me. But they haven't been that accurate on forecasting their own behavior. Right. So what I look at is the Fed funds futures markets, and the implied probabilities there have done pretty well. And right now, it called correctly the rate hike in March. It called correctly the rate hike we had in May. Right. And right now, you've got to go all the way to December to get an even money bet on the Fed raising rates again. Right. Yeah. So I think most of the dialogue is going to shift to how they shrink the balance sheet. Not doing it, but talking about how they do it. And maybe we get another hike at the end of the year, but I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't wait till early next year. Right. So at what impact do you think, you know, uh, if we could get uh, Obamacare repealed or not repealed or just getting through some of this hogwash that's going on right now in D.C., uh, you know, 
whatever side of the aisle you're on, I'm not, right. you know, I, I, personally I would like to see some tax reform, but, right. you know, that's just because I believe it's my money and not the government's money. Yeah. But that's just a whole other conversation. So, and, and part of the problem is it's hard to unwind them in isolation. I mean, I think most of the folks that understand D.C. and the way reconciliation works, and I will tell you, you probably have got to handle the health care issue mm-hmm. first, right. and then you can take the tax issue on, tax reform issue, and then you can take on the issue of infrastructure spending. So it feels like it's pretty late in the year to get all this done before the end of the year. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of side adventures going on that maybe maybe in part are designed to slow down the advancing yeah. of the agenda. But I would believe that. The corporate income tax part, there's bipartisan support for. But when, once we start talking about individual income taxes, out comes all the class warfare tools again. Sure. Right, yeah. right. Uh, so, you know, you said earlier, uh, steepening of the yield curve hurt, or, uh, helps the banks, uh, but it, it does cause uh, cost of capital to rise for all other corporations, probably them included. Uh, in fact, you know, when you when you think about that, and we talked about de-risking of the economy, in a lot of ways, uh, some of the things that that our CFOs have done have decided that they would borrow at such a low rate, mm-hmm. probably a smart thing, and then they bought their stock back. Right. So you go into, uh, you know, kind of a maturing of the cycle uh, with companies. I, I sit and question, did they really de-risk? It seems to me like they've got more leverage, which is not ne- necessarily what you think of when you're talking about less risk. Right. Um, any concerns there? Well, there's there's buying your stock back out of your earnings and cash flow, and right. then there's buying it back by levering up, that is right. borrowing the money. And uh, you, you, the concern is if the economy hits a bump on the road, if you've levered up that way, does it does it impact your the, the return on equity subsequent to that? And the answer is yes, it can, of course. The other part of the pie we've got to remember on these risk on, risk off trades is even the Treasury bonds presumably have zero default risk. And so when we talk about Treasury bond yield, long-term bond yields rising, that doesn't mean that corporate bond yields go up just as fast right. because it could well be that the risk premium in the corporate bond market comes down. And so you might see the Treasury yields rise faster than the corporate bond yields do if the market interprets it as a positive sign for subsequent growth. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Janet Yellen made comments this week, uh, kind of talking about some of that. Uh, I know a lot of the uh, the bonds that they've taken on have been uh, mortgage-backed securities, and uh, she said that she would like to actually get down to the point where the the uh, Fed only holds treasuries. Does that impact the housing market? Well, I think part of the attraction of the mortgage-backed securities is we had is that it, it was a way of injecting liquidity directly in the housing market, right. which was a major catalyst of, of of some of the downturn. Right. I think now that the housing market has stabilized, there's probably less of a case to be made for investing directly in that one sector as opposed to holding government debt, which presumably is agnostic with regard to sector, if you will. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I guess we probably ought to yeah, take a yeah. quick break yeah, here, we'll, Bill, we'll, and we'll, we'll come back. Here. Yep, we'll stop here real quick if I could hit a button. I got a million questions to ask. I'm sure we'll only get about half of them in. Yeah, there you go. All right, we'll be right back to listen to Money Talks. Don't touch that dial. This country, you've got to make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. This is Money Talks. Money, money, money. We're back. It's Money Talks. I'm Bill Aiko with Troy Harmon and Dr. Roger Tuttero. Just real quick, if you got a question, you can reach us 
770-429-9166. That's 770-429-9166. And you can always email us at drgene at hensler.com. So uh, look forward to your questions. Absolutely. Now, uh, we swerved a little into uh, the housing market, real estate, and that sort of thing. I noticed in the Beige Book comments this week uh, uh, – Something that I don't fully understand. Uh, construction, this is the note, construction ranged from flat to growing. Uh, low inventories constrained home sales in many districts. Uh, what's going on with that, Roger? You got any idea? Sure. I would say right now the biggest constraints in the housing market are on the supply side. And uh, there's no doubt to me we could, most markets we could be selling more new homes if they were available. Part of the problem is that we went into the recovery of the housing market with a nice inventory of lots, courtesy of failed financial institutions, but right. we've run through most of those in the hot segments of the economy. I mean, in Metro Atlanta, you're probably talking about the northern suburbs right. in the best school districts. And so as those lot inventories have come down, our banker friends are, have been funding construction loans, but there's still some gradual reluctance to fund the A&D side, the acquisition and development side. So lot inventories are low, so you can't build as many homes. It's also starting to show up as rising lot prices and home values as well. Now, yeah. is, that a, is that a pure economic decision on their part, or is that a regulatory issue? I think both. I mean, okay. you know, first off, the, the way banks are regulated now, they have restrictions on what they call their concentration ratios. So only certain percentages of your portfolio can be in commercial real estate, for example. And it's defined as the dollar amount relative to the amount of capital the bank has. There's some of that playing as well. And then also a lot of bankers, you know, went through a time they never saw in their life right. between 2006 and 2010. They're scared. And, and, and it's sort of cautious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly well, right. I mean, especially here in Georgia, that uh, that was a huge impact. Anybody that was uh, that seemed like they had really gone all in with uh, development type right. loans uh, really suffered significantly. So, um, did Georgia have the highest bank failures? It had the highest number of bank yeah, failures. But, you know, if you don't think about Georgia, we got a lot of counties, we got a lot of banks, and there's a connection between the two. All right. So yeah. I got you. Yeah. Uh, so when you, when you uh, think about these, um, this situation, is there, I mean, we still have a few uh, uh, PVC farms here and there. Is that what we're talking about, or are we talking about absolute new developments that are? Well, I, that I think we're a lot of the, wanting to mess with. Great, great. I love that, love that metaphor, PVC farms, and a lot right. of them are way out there in the extreme exurbs. You know, you can still go out very, yeah, very well, word. very far west of Atlanta and, and very far east and still see them. Yeah. But but as far as finding lots in uh, close to 285 or in town or in the best school districts, they're pretty tough. Yeah. Now, the other artifact, you see that right here. We happen to be sitting in Cobb County today. A lot of areas are seeing infield construction that for air land that we didn't know we would ever see developed or in some cases gentrification of older neighborhoods. So the problem gets cleared out in several different ways. Right. But I don't think there's any any dispute that in hot markets uh, it is a seller's market right now. Yeah. All right, so we've talked a lot about what's going on in the national economy and things with the Fed. Uh, I know you generally have a pocket full of information to talk about uh, with Georgia. Specifically, um, anything you want to throw out about things going on in Georgia? Yeah, you know, we're, we're continuing to do quite well. Georgia... We felt the Great Recession disproportionate to many other states around the country. You know, we were among the 10 states that lost the most jobs. Now talk about a reversal of fortune. Uh, we've been, I think we're number six or seven over the last 12 months. We're certainly in the top six in 2016. Course, but our unemployment is still a little higher than the national average, right? Yeah, but if you look at job creation, which I think is a better way of doing it, because with unemployment, you get into those issues of if people migrate into your community, if you're a place that attracts a lot of migration, your unemployment rate is probably going to be a little bit higher. I see. And so his 
historically, Georgia and Metro Atlanta have run higher unemployment rates than maybe what, what the strength of the economy would suggest. Good news on the fiscal side, we finished up the year up about 4.5% for tax revenues. That's above what the governor and the General Assembly had in the FY17 budget. So we should be able to pick up a couple bucks for the rainy day funds, which are always nice. Uh, you know, Georgia did an amazing job, I think, navigating through two deep recessions mm-hmm. and maintaining its AAA bond ratings. And so the good news is we're gradually rebuilding the state, and we're doing so in a fiscally responsible manner. Yeah, one of the pieces that uh, that keeps us that AAA rate is uh, the fact that we have a balanced budget amendment. I think we're right. one of like eight states that has a AAA rating on our uh, general obligation bonds, which is awesome. Uh, does make bond buying a little bit difficult at times because they are so sought after. Right. Um, so uh, states doing decent. We've we've come quite a long uh, way back. Um, Beyond that, uh, we do have several other questions. Um, if you look on our list here, we've got uh, Janet Yellen seems to be talking down the dollar. This is Kate from Alpharetta. Uh, let's assume the Fed starts uh, raising rates and unwinding quantitative easing. How does that affect the global economy? Well, typically we think that higher interest rates tend to support the currency. So right. And it, I think that's probably what we saw this week. Yeah. So, you know. You know, uh, uh, Chairman Yellen's. it's interesting because historically the Fed has tended to talk about interest rates most of the time and left dollar policy uh, dialogue to the Treasury. And Treasury tended up to do the same with regard to interest rates. But right. it's, it's, there's not a hard law, wall there. But I do, I do think that talking down the dollar is, is acknowledging that the strong dollar is hurting us on trade. It makes American-produced products more expensive on foreign markets. And so it does put some pressure on our manufacturers. And uh, certainly, you know, we as consumers benefit from that strong dollar in terms of being able to buy foreign imports cheaper. But I think from a growth perspective, there is some risk that uh, the strong dollar hurts us. Yeah. And, you know, some pretty prominent folks uh, late in 16 said they thought that might be among the big risks for 2017. Yeah. Uh, I noticed this uh, this week looking at uh, returns year to date, and you know we talk about it coming into this uh, this whole show uh, where the market's up 10% when you look at uh, S and P 500. I noticed that uh, the EFA, that's uh, Eurasia, Africa, and the Middle East, uh, or uh, or the Far East rather, not the Middle East. Um, is uh, is up over 14% in the first half. Uh, how much impact do you think quantitative easing had on uh, some of that stuff? Was that? Yeah, you know, we, we weren't alone. I mean, we have a, we had an entire planet where central banks were trying to pump more liquidity in. Right. Because it was a, it was truly a global recession. Of course, in China's case, that means you're growing six percent as opposed to twelve. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so I think around the globe you've seen that, and that is, to some degree that's one of the reasons the dollar. Has been as strong as it has, as though although we have been quite naughty in terms of how much monetary accommodation we pushed out there, we've had a lot of company as well. And the interesting part, you know, it's been roughly one year since the Brexit vote. And if you watch the markets right the day before and the day after, you know, you saw, you know, of course the pollsters had it wrong on that, but when it came out that the UK was exiting, they had it wrong on quite a few things. Quite a few things. (laughs) (laughs) So, but you saw a huge rally in the dollar and a huge rally in dollar denominated assets, which, you know, tells you again, in moments of crisis, the dollar's still king. Yeah. Uh, so I guess a, a political question to throw in the middle of this. Uh, Janet Yellen's term is up, what, in February, I believe? Right. Uh, any idea 
any, I mean, this is like a wild guess, but uh, any idea she's probably not going to stay on? Is that your I think assumption? The general assumption is that, that, sh- that she would not be reappointed. Um, and, again, that's not a criticism of her at all. Um, but I think there's a sense out there that President Trump will want to put his own person in, if you will. Yeah. So does this put any pressure on her to get uh, the unwind of quantitative easing started quicker, or I mean, is that her legacy? I, yeah, I think I think she and, and and Chairman Bernanke will share the legacy of quantitative easing and and, and taking the Fed down a path it had never done before, right. in large part because never faced these challenges before. Sure. And I think she it would make sense to believe that she wants to go ahead and kind of help lay out what the roadmap on a path to normalcy would be if she anticipates leaving in February. Yeah, so is uh, is this the first time ever we've seen quantitative easing in play for any central bank or just the United States? Well, we had we had Operation Twist back in 1961 where, okay. we, where we pushed up short-term rates and uh, lowered long-term rates. And so that's why the name got carried forward to 2011 when we resurrected that policy. But the phrase on quantitative easing where you're really just basically saying we're going to target the volume of assets we're going to buy and, and talk about that less than the, the interest rates, that, that's a relatively new phenomenon. The only other experiment that might kind of line up with that at all would be what we saw in the in between 79 and 80, 82, mm-hmm. the Volcker experiment right. where we and targeted aggregates as right. opposed yeah. to interest rates. Right. right. Final question, I guess we ought to make it quick. Um, you see uh, any sort of a bubble in the economy at the moment or in the stock market? I know you don't look at the stock market as much as you do the economy, but you know, I'm going to leave that with you guys. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I would tell you that, you know, as, as you all commented on earlier, price-earnings ratios are high uh, by most metrics, but, but we're in a different kind of environment, so it'll be interesting to watch on that. And I, I would, though, keep, continue to keep an eye on bonds. All right. Well, Roger, appreciate you being here. Troy? Yeah. Well, we want you back again, Roger. Always a pleasure. All right. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Have a good week. All material presented is compiled from sources believed to be reliable and current, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. The contents are intended for general information purposes only. Information provided should not be the sole basis in making any decisions and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified professional, such as a tax consultant, insurance advisor, or attorney. Although this material is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with respect to the subject matter, it may not apply in all situations. This is not to be construed as an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments. It is not our intention to state, indicate, or imply in any manner that current or past results are indicative of future profitability or expectations. Portfolio holdings discussed are subject to change. There is no guarantee that in the future these securities will be held in Hensler accounts. As with all investments, there are associated inherent risks. Please obtain and review all financial material carefully before investing. Hensler is not licensed to offer or sell insurance products. This overview is not to be construed as an offer to purchase any insurance products.